Now with Tzadishmaya, my beautiful students, let's continue with learning what we're saying and why we're saying what we're saying to our master, to our creator, to Rivono Shedolam. And so now let's continue in the second passage of the Shema. And it says, the second passage of the Shema, again, I'm saying it in English because I want us to fully understand what we're saying. So the second passage of the Shema says, and it, and it will be, if you will surely accept my commandments that I command you this day to love my master, your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, I will give the rain of your land at its time, the early rain and the latter rain, and you will gather in your grain, your wine and your oil, and I will give grass in your field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware in case your heart be tempted and you turn astray and serve other gods, bowing down to them. And the fury of God will be directed against you and he will close off the heavens and there will be no rain and the ground will not give its produce and you will perish quickly from upon the good land that God gives you. And you shall place my words upon your heart and upon your soul and bind them for a sign upon your arm and they shall be an emblem between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children to speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that you and your children may live long on the land which God swore to your forefathers to give them for as long as the heavens are above the earth. And here then it says, when it says, and it will be, if you will surely accept my commandments that I command you this day to love my master, your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So here, and this, we're starting the second passage of Shema with virtually the same words as the first. So in the first passage, we hear the call of Shema. Listen, Israel which means more than just mere listening. It means pay close attention to this pledge of total commitment to God. So in the second passage, the word Shema rises to a higher level. The word Shema means if you will surely accept my commandments. So God has given us his precious Torah as our inheritance for all generations. He wants us not only to listen, but to observe the Torah and make it ours. And the Torah that he gives us, he gives us today, every day of our lives. God wants us to love and serve him with all our heart and all our soul. And we understand how God, the king of the universe, will command that we serve him. So the Ibn Ezra addresses the serious issue of how does God command us to love him? Can anyone command the feeling? So the Ibn Ezra addresses this issue in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. The last of the commandments is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house and everything that belongs to your neighbor. So the Ibn Ezra questions, how is it possible to legislate against the feelings of envy and jealousy? Feelings cannot be controlled by law. And he responds with a parable about a peasant who is enamored with the princes of his kingdom. Yet he realizes that as far as he is concerned, she's totally unattainable. So therefore, he won't covet her. So, so too, we don't desire anything to which we're not entitled. And such, our neighbor's wife, home or property. So, so too is our love of God. The more we know about God, the more we realize that he is the one and only who created this world and provides for all his creations. Our appreciation for all that God does and our relationship with him engenders our great love for him. God does not need to legislate our love for him any more than he commands a child to love her mother. It flows naturally from their relationship. So Rabbi Moshe Feinstein 
the Abish Shalom raises a thought-provoking question. This second passage of the Shema prayer begins with the obligation to accept upon oneself the total commitment to the mitzvot, yet this responsibility is already highlighted in the very first passage. So why the repetition? The Torah says, the Torah says, Rav Moshe is teaching us that it's not enough to accept the mitzvot because we are compelled to do so. Rather, we fulfill the mitzvot with feelings of love internal joy for the sacred opportunity and a yearning to be closer to God. Here it says, to love my master, your God. And so this passage deals with motive. You shall not say, certainly I will learn, but in order that I may become rich, in order that I may obtain the title rabbi, in order that I may receive a prize. But whatever you do, do it out of love for God. And ultimately, the honor which you desire is going to come, certainly come. So when an individual declares I'm going to learn Torah, I will learn Torah, but only to become a rich or to obtain the title of a rabbi. So who, to whom is he speaking? So he's making a deal with God. He's stating that his motives are for doing these worthwhile deeds. And he, God knows what he's thinking and knows what he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. And God rejects his motivations to attach special rewards to mitzvot. God wants us to love him for all the right reasons. So therefore, the Torah tells us to love God and serve him with all your heart. So a well-known story of Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk illustrates this concept. The Kotsk Rebbe was passing by a Jew who was devouring his fish with gusto. And Rebbe Mendel was amazed at his exuberance. So the Jew remarked, I love fish. And the Kotsk the, the Rebbe asked him, do you really love fish? Of course, he said, can't you see? So, if you love him, retorted Remendo, why did you kill the fish and fillet him? What you really love is your stomach. So the Kotzker's insight breaks through the facades of who we would like people to think we are. God doesn't have to read our motives. He reads our thoughts. And so here where it says to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, it's the mitzvah to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources, is a main focus in the first passage of Shema. And in the second passage, the focus is on serving God with all your heart. And what does it mean to serve God with all your heart? Rashi comments on this service is in the heart and we refer to it as tefillah, prayer. So once again, we find the plural version of hearts, which represents both our good inclination and evil desires. In this verse, we're called upon to empower the good inclination and subdue the evil one in God's service, enabling the prayers of a pure heart to emerge. So here where it says, I will give the rain of your land at its time, the early rain and the latter rain, and you will gather in your grain, your wine and your oil. So from the flow of these verses here, we might presume that God rewards us in this world for obeying him and performing the mitzvot. If you will surely accept my commandments that I command you this day, I will give the rain at its time. And you will gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. So this reading seemingly opposes a major teaching of rabbis. There's no reward for a mitzvah in this world. So how do we reconcile this verse with the rabbi's tenant? So in our verse, the reward of a bountiful harvest is not payment for observing the Torah. In fact, since obeying the mitzvot is a spiritual act, one cannot fully compen be compensated with material reward in this world. Simply put, a material reward is inadequate, inadequate for such a spiritual endeavor. So the reward for a mitzvah 
like the mitzvah itself, must be eternal and not limited like the temporal world in which we exist. So how then are we to understand the gift of a bountiful harvest if it's not a reward for observing God's commandments? So the wonderful harvest is not a reward for our mitzvah observance. Rather, it enables us to perform additional mitzvot in good health and with joy. The benefits that we receive in this world from our mitzvot compare us, uh, prepare for us the ultimate reward that we're going to receive in the world to come in Olam Abba. So, when we compare the first two passages in the Shema and we confront a major, a major silence here. So, why, why is the first passage written in the singular? And the second is generally expressed in the plural form. So to find an answer to this question, let's turn to the sage's commentary. The first passage about loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, refers to the individual. And the second passage, praised in the plural form, refers to a congregation. So note the difference of the first passage being addressed to the individual. Our relationship with God through the mitzvot we perform is a personal one. We should try to feel in our hearts, this is my God, and I will beautify him. And the mitzvot mentioned in this passage connect us with our Creator. Loving God, teaching Torah to our children, don't need to fill in and affixing mezuzot, and doing, doing all types of forms of chesed are all means to become closer to God. Even when we perform these mitzvot in shul as part of a congregation, they are personal mitzvot based on our intimate relationship with our Creator. So to every personal mitzvah, we bring part of ourselves, our personality, our neshama, our very tefilot to God. And even when we pray collectively, our individual prayers don't get lost, but retain their unique identity. And what's more, even though we say the exact same prayers day in and day out, they're not repetitive. Because while the prayers may be the same, we, we are never the same. The experience of life each day enriches the meaning of our prayers. And so this president for bringing the exact same offering or saying the same tefillot as others while still retaining your identity is found in the Torah. At the dedication of the Mishkan, God said to Moshe, one prince each day, one prince each day shall present his offering for the dedication of the altar. So each leader of the 12 tribes of Israel brought his offering on his prescribed day, yet significantly his offering was identical to all the others. While the Torah never wastes words, it enumerates each of the individual's offerings to demonstrate the significance of each leader's gift and its individuality. So the power of the many for good or for evil? So on a national level, at Sinai, the Jewish people collectively accepted the Torah and mitzvot with their proclamation, we will do and we will hear. So the, story, the Torah says, Israel encamps singular. They're opposite the mountain. So the Midrash teaches us that this verse is written in the singular because on this momentous occasion, the Jewish people were like one person with one heart. And the lesson we derive from this Midrash is that when Jews unite to perform mitzvot, they can bring God's presence, the Shekhinah, down to earth, as they did at Mount Sinai. So in brief, although the unique contribution of every Jew is performing a mitzvah is compelling, joining together with a congregation has a power of its own. So, should we apply this principle that the whole is greater than the sum of its part to evil activities as well? In other words, if there's a wicked congregation that rebels against God's wishes, would it weigh more heavily than the actions of a few evil individuals? 
So the classic case of a wicked congregation is the episode of the ten spies. The Torah records God's rage against these spies. How much longer will this evil congregation cause others to complain against me? And for this terrible sin, the spies were immediately punished with death. And the reason for God's actions against them was their collective betrayal of God's will to bring the Jewish people into the promised land. There were ten prominent leaders of Minyan who publicly rejected God's plan. So the fact that they were princes of the tribes gave weight to their opposition. And through their strong arguments, they poisoned the minds and hearts of the people against entering the promised land. So not only did the spies perish, the adult males of that congregation who gave credence to their opinion that God did not have sufficient power to bring them into the promised land, did not merit to entry and died in the desert. So we see that the wickedness of the few under undermined the fate of an entire generation. And we, and we derive an important lesson here. The strength of a community to do good or evil is measured by the unity they bring to their objectives. So why does idolatry anger God? The second passage of the Shema introduces the lure of idolatry. So beware in case your heart be tempted and you turn away and serve other gods bowing down to them. And the fury of God will be directed against you and he will close off the heavens and there will be no rain. And the ground will not give its produce and you will perish quickly from upon the good land that God gives you. So why should God be angry at one who commits idol worship? We all know that these idols were man-made and many of them were modeled after human beings. So the well-known psalm describes them. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have a mouth but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. And they have a nose but do not smell. Hands but they don't feel. But, and, uh, hands but they don't feel. And feet but, that, that, but they don't walk. So clearly God knows that the idols people worship have no powers, whether they are earthly brick stones or celestial bodies. God is the creator who knows the entire universe and beyond his is his and his alone. He's not jealous of his own creations. So why does God get angry when man worship idols? And God is not jealous. He gets angry when we are foolish enough to worship worthless deities. We already have a long-term spiritual relationship with him going back to our forefathers. He is zealous in taking the Jews to task for demeaning that special relationship. And it's stated in Parashah Hazinu, corrupt is not his, corruption is not his, it is his children's defect. You Israel, a crooked and twisted generation, is this how you repay God, you disgraceful unwise people? Is he not your father, your master? He has made you and established you. So in effect, God is telling his people, don't blame me for your punishments and imperfections. You brought it upon yourself. Am I not your father and master who made you what you are today and put you on your feet? To worship idols is more than an act of infidelity, is an act of foolishness, even stupidity. How can you believe in these vacacious idols, especially those images you made yourselves? How can you trade the eternal God, the creator of the universe, for meaningless statues? And so what does the banishment of the Jews teach us? The threat of the banishment of the Jews from Israel mentioned in the second passage of the Shema is punishment for their sins. And you will perish quickly from upon the land that God gives you. And from this passage, we learn an important lesson about spiritual survival before we return home. Daily meets vote should not be taken for granted. We have to realize that our way back home is brought about by the consciousness fulfillment of these commandments and even after you have been banished make for yourselves distinctive by means of my commandments 
Don't don't tefill in and affix mezuzot to your doorposts, so that these mitzvot shall not be like new to you when you return. And so the Ramban proposes that the mitzvot performed in Israel are on a higher level because the land itself has the highest degree of holiness. And the Torah warns us that these everyday mitzvot, such as tefillin and mezuzot, which we perform in the diaspora, must be observed on the highest level so we will be worthy even when we return to the Holy Land. And so here in this, in what it says here in Shema, so that you and your children may live long on the land which God swore to your forefathers, forefathers to give them. So living in the land of Israel is the greatest gift. Precious previous generations yearned to be there and dreamed of seeing their children go, grow up in Eretz Israel. But it was not meant to be. Over the course of history, the Jewish people have spent more time in exile than they have in the land of Israel. And fortunately, by the grace of God, generations of our people now have been raised in Israel. And this verse teaches us that one day God's promise to the entire Jewish people will be realized so that you and your children may live long on the land which God swore to your forefathers. So, the spiritual force of Torah study versus the power of tefillin. So here's a fascinating question. The first passage lists Torah study before the mitzvah of tefillin. You shall teach them thoroughly to your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your arm. So the second passage reverses the order. And bind them as a sign upon your arm, and you shall teach them to your children. So why is the order of the mitzvot reversed? And so it's been suggested that because the land of Israel is on the highest level of holiness and Torah is spiritually on the highest level of holiness and the study of Torah is equal to them all. So Torah should be listed before tefillin and the second passage which refers to the plight of the Jewish people in the diaspora, the physical act of putting on tefillin reinforces their faith leading to a renewed commitment to Torah learning. And so with Siyat Ishmaya. We're going to continue with our, our lessons here. And Bezat Hashem, Hashem should help us that we should continue to un uncover the meanings of the third passage of the Shema. Bli neder with Hashem's help tomorrow. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve'amen.